This is Our American Stories, and it's time for the McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan, someone that you don't know, but whose life and whose voice you're sure to be captivated by. And today, Bob recalls one particular day during his 13-week stay in Marine Boot Camp. had a long day, and we were tired and very hungry. To make matters worse, we were one of the last platoons to get into the mess hall for dinner. As we filed in, you could see dusk was coming from the setting sun. The sun was rising when we started our day. After heaping my tray with all the food I could, I stood at attention along the table and waited for the command to sit and eat. Sergeant Calvert hollered in his deep and gravelly voice, and our butts hit the chair. Get up, he said. Get back to attention. Let's try that again. All I could think about was, oh, God, let's get going here, man. This is time to eat. I just wanted to eat. He said, I want to hear one sound of 80 butts hitting the seat, not 80. Ready? We repeated this exercise again and again until he was satisfied. What a jerk, I thought, as I sat down. Finally, he gave the command to eat at attention. We were not to look around or talk. Only then did he give us the command to eat. Staring down at the tray and shoveling food in, I wanted something to drink. In front of the recruit sitting next to me was a metallic pitcher containing the Kool-Aid. With very little motion, I tilted my head and imperceptibly whispered the words, Kool-Aid, when all of a sudden boots came charging down the length of the table rattling the trays with each stomp. Standing before me on top of the table with his boots straddling my tray was Sergeant Calvert. He looked down at me with the visage of a wrathful god. I thought he was going to kick my mouth in with the polished leather toe of his boot. I froze for a moment. I didn't know what to do. And then he told me, cursing and yelling with a thunderous voice, he said, are you suffering from rectal cranial inversion, Private McClellan? Is there something about the English language that you don't understand? You have disobeyed my orders. And for that, McClellan, you will pay. You will all pay. Now get up, all of you, and get out of here right now. Everybody fall outside into formation. Do you think you're at the slop shoot? This is no damn social club. Get outside and get into formation. One recruit ran out trying to shove food in his mouth until Staff Sergeant Fisher knocked the tray out of his hands, sending it and the food to the deck. Standing in the middle of the stampede, fleeing through the doorway, he knocked trays out of the hands of privates trying to poach food. I ran past the garbage can, knocked all the food out of the tray, stacked it on the wash rack, and lined up in formation. I learned that day that though the Marine Corps has to feed us, they don't have to give us any time to eat. It was at moments like this that I hated Sergeant Calvert the most. In all platoons, there's always one D.I. that is the most dreaded, feared, and despised drill instructor of all. In platoon 3095, that man was Sergeant Calvert. He was short, he was curt, monosyllabic, completely unsympathetic to our needs, and spoke with a deep, gargling voice that seemed to come up from his bowels. His diction was perfect, though. He had a passion for hard consonants and long, long vowels. 
Each curse that left his lips would be elongated as if it was a musical note. He was indifferent to life under his command and completely intolerant of individuals. I think the only book he'd ever read was the guidebook for Marines. Wearing his gray Marine Corps sweatshirt this morning was a sign that we would spend the day in hell. He approached me and with his smoky bare brim kept pushing the edge of it into my forehead while he upbraided me for thinking that his orders don't apply to me. He said that God had personally picked him to make my life as miserable as possible until I learned to follow directions. You seem to believe that my commands to eat and attention don't apply to you, Private McClellan. You must think you're someone very special. Is that what your mother told you? That you're very special? Very precious? Maybe she wouldn't approve of the way we do things down here. Maybe she should come down here and help you pack and take you home with her. Well, you, Private McClellan, are no longer important anymore. The Marine Corps is. No one's coming to rescue you. You asked to be here. We didn't ask you to come here. We didn't ask you to join. You will regret your attitude. Looking up to my face, the bill of his smoky bear kept tapping the bridge of my nose with its edge while he stuttered and screamed curses at me. Inches from my face, I had to stand staring straight ahead and feel the spray of his saliva spew out of his mouth, scattered among his curses. I stood his attention, standing as tall as I could to make him see he was smaller than I was and shorter than I was, and keeping my eyes looking straight ahead, I didn't flinch. And at that moment, all I was thinking about was shoving my hand down his throat and ripping his larynx out when he stopped abruptly and walked behind me. I stood waiting for something to happen, but nothing did. I could not see where he was nor what he was doing. So in a few seconds, I just decided to relax a little bit. And within seconds of that, I could feel his breath coarsely whispering into my ear from behind me. With his lips barely touching my earlobe, he cooed. You don't like me, do you, McClellan? I think you hate me. I think you hate me, don't you, Private McClellan? No, sir, I shouted in protest. He whispered to me, it breaks my heart to know that you're upset with me, Private McClellan. I thought we'd be good friends down here, you and me. Maybe you disapprove of my instructions. Am I hurting your feelings, Private McClellan? Are you going to write and tell your mother? No, sir, I yelled again in protest. Coming around from behind me, he once again pushed that brim into my forehead. And inches from my eyes, he said, I can see right now, Private, you are thinking of how much you would like to hurt me, aren't you? No, sir, I said. Oh, yes, you are, McClellan. Do I look stupid to you? You look stupid to me. And when we come back, we're going to find out what happens to Bob McClellan and Sergeant Calvert. The McClellan Files, here on Our American Stories. And we 
return to Bob McClellan's story about his Marine drill instructor, Sergeant Calvert, who made his life at Marine boot camp a living hell. I think you're a real dumb sh private. So let me make something real clear to you. Anytime you want a piece of me, you go for it. Look around first before you do and say goodbye to the world you knew. Because if you ever raise your hand towards me, you will never leave this base. With his voice rising louder and louder with every syllable, he hollered, I will break you like an egg. And after I'm done with you, I'll keep rotating your ass back for as long as it is necessary. Then widening his eyes, he looked through me saying, and you will never, ever, ever leave here. Do you understand me, Private? Yes, sir, I answered. I wanted to get under his skin in the worst way, but I knew I'd pay a terrible price for such foolishness. Boot camp is designed to ensure recruits are never right and never win. There is no victory here. My best outcome would be to survive it and head somewhere else. So I just took it. Standing in platoon formation, he ordered us to right face. He said we were going to go on a little run to help us digest our meals. He didn't want us to get fat and lazy and ruin our figure in a Marine Corps uniform. I was up front since I was one of the taller recruits, and up till now my wrestling experience kept me up with the challenge of conditioning. We headed out across the base down the road to the Naval Training Center at the end of the San Diego airport. When we turned onto this road, I knew he had lied to us. Passing by the Naval Training Center, we had to suffer the indignation of seeing sailors smoking, eating candy bars, drinking Cokes, and hollering insults at us. As we ran by in a cloud of dust, they gathered along the fence, yelling to us about how stupid we looked and what a bunch of dumbasses we were to join the Corps. At that moment, I thought maybe my father was right. I might have been a lot happier in the Navy. The sun was almost gone, and in the dim light, we meandered along every road on the base as fatigue began to take its toll. I could hear men behind me gasping for air. My own chest was heaving from breathing deeply to get as much air into my blood as possible. My head tilted forward and my shoulders started to slouch. My legs were tired and I was running out of gas. Soon, a couple men fell out to vomit their partially digested dinner, while a couple others just collapsed and sat down alongside the road. One was crying. For every man who fell, two recruits had to fall out, help him up, and carry him if necessary. Marines leave no man behind, and we will finish with everyone in the platoon returning, dead or alive, or we will do this all night. Sergeant Calvert? Oh, he was impeccably dressed in his starch utilities, showing no sign of fatigue or perspiration. He continued running, leaving a trail of recruits on the road behind him, with Sergeant Fisher kicking the behinds of the slackers to get off their butts and get back into the platoon. To inspire us, Sergeant Calvert called for a song whose rhythmic chant would sing out to all that Platoon 3095 was coming to an obstacle course near you. To instill pride in us, we sang, If I die in a combat zone, box me up and send me home, pin my medals across my chest, and tell my girl I did my best. Sound off. One, two. Sound off. Three, four. 
but as more and more men were falling behind, he said he was ashamed of us. He said we were a disgraceful and useless mob unworthy of dying in battle. So he changed the cadence to a song of shame and humiliation that turned the heads of the Marines within distance to hear us sing the Mickey Mouse Club song. And we sang, Who's the leader of the club that's made for you and me? M-I-C-K-E-Y M-O-U-S-E My chest was heaving and my lungs were burning. My feet were starting to shuffle. I could not believe I was still running. I was tempted so many times just to pull out of the formation and sit down, but I knew that dropping dead was preferable than having Sergeant Calvert's wrath riding me every day. But I was at the end. Soon, all I could think about was going home. I remembered what our DIs told us when we arrived. They told us when you think you can't go another step, you have another 30% left. Your mind will quit long before your body does. It is my job to take you to that 90% of that 30. I could not go any further, yet we just kept running along the road. Quitting was the only word that was on my mind. I thought the hell with him. I just can't go any farther. He then he ordered us to march, and we slowed down to a normal pace. We continued to march to allow all the stragglers to catch up. And when everyone was present, he gave us the command to halt. Sucking air deep into my lungs, I looked back down the road and realized that he took me far farther than I'd ever been or ever even willing to go. I was done miles back, and yet here I am. Margins, boundaries, limitations, they have no place here. We're being trained for conditions and situations that are going to make us do the inconceivable. We weren't some football team at practice. This is not about conditioning, but about endurance and character. We were being trained to exceed our own expectations of ourselves and those of our enemies. The bar was going higher. My clothes were soaked with perspiration. I looked like I'd been standing in the rain. There was not a dry spot on my body. Calling us to attention, he stood in front of us, and looking past him, I recognized the sand pits. Oh, Jesus Christ. He's not serious. I thought he's not going to make us do this tonight after all he's put us through. What a son of a bitch. What a bastard. Sergeant Calvert found another 30% in us, and he wanted it. I knew it was going to be a very long night. I think after a little run like that, you people could use some time at the beach. So we're going to play some games in the sand. You probably want to drink beer and play volleyball. Maybe you want to walk around and look at the girls in their bikinis. But not today, privates. Today there will be no bikinis on the beach. Because there are no bikinis in the jungles where you are going. Forward, march. Moving us into the deep sand, he commanded. Instead, you're going to do squat thrusts. 50 count, all together, face half right. Ready, go! After hundreds of squat thrusts in the sand, to push-ups and sit-ups, we jumped up and down in the ankle-deep sand. Sand was everywhere, in our boots, mouths, nostrils, ears, trousers, and down in our underwear. It was all glued to our bodies with perspiration. A crust of sand covered our clothes like an extra layer of skin. The sand, wet from perspiration, clung to our bodies, 
from head to toe. Most of us were unrecognizable with a thick layer of sand caked on our faces and necks. When we were finally exhausted, which didn't matter to him at all, he told us to slither on our bellies like other lower forms of life for 50 yards across the sand. Now it was pouring into our utilities and down into our t-shirts and boxers and socks. Grains of sand coated the inside of my mouth and stuck up in between my teeth and cheeks. I couldn't even spit it out because my mouth was so dry. It was dark now and late by the time we marched back to our huts. We were told the head would be closed until one hour after taps and we were to sleep in our utilities. Then I desperately needed water and a toothbrush. I climbed into my bunk with sand pouring out of my clothes onto my sheets. I cursed the day that Sergeant Calvert was born, and I cursed his mother too. When taps blew and the lights clicked off, it took a couple seconds to say the prayer that I said every night. Oh God, when will this be over? Help me get out of here, and please God, Send Sergeant Calvert to hell. And then I just passed out. And what storytelling, folks. And that's Bob McClellan and the McClellan Files. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and look it up. And you'll see all of his work there. And you can pick up great stories in the middle. And my goodness, even in the middle, this one stands. And... Some lines that struck me about Sergeant Calvert. He took me farther than I'd ever been. This is not about conditioning, but endurance and character. And we were being trained to go beyond our expectations and our enemies. And how it ended. I cursed the day Sergeant Calvert was born. I cursed him. I cursed his mother, too. The McClellan Files. Bob McClellan's story. So many Marines' story here on Our American Story. stories and one of the new additions to our show is our villages stories and we've been sending our recent college graduate faith to this retirement community famous retirement community perhaps the biggest in the country and we sent her down there just to make friends have a good time and bring us back some stories and by the way the villages is home and this is in florida by the way about an hour north of orlando and you've heard about it i'm sure but the Villages has over 157,000 residents, 2,200 clubs, that's activity and organization clubs, that kind, and then 600 holes of golf. And there's live music on the squares, all three of the squares, 
every single night but for big old storms. And in her recent trip, Faith was able to attend an honor flight. The Honor Flight Network is a nonprofit organization created to recognize and celebrate America's veterans. Our donations help to bring the World War II vets to D.C. to visit and reflect at the monuments to their lives. According to the Department of Veterans Affairs, an estimated 640 World War II veterans die each day. Our time to express our thanks to these brave men and women is running out. But sadly, some of these veterans are either too old or too sick to make that plane trip. So sometimes the Honor Flight organization goes to where the veterans are. Faith was able to attend just such an event at the Villages. She brings us a story from one of these veterans. Jean Nupp is a World War II veteran, and a mere 92 years old, and an eventful 92 years it has been. After the Honor Flight, I had the opportunity of sitting down and talking with him for a little bit to ask him how his military career got started. Officer candidate, I they come around one day and when I was in high school, this was in 1943, they said if you'd be interested in going into the Navy Air Corps, you come and take some tests. And I took tests and that's how I started. Going through, the Navy put me through college as part of this uh, training program, but I ended up in the regular Navy as an officer in the Navy. I served from 1943 to 1946. Probably the high point of my career, I was in Tokyo Bay when they signed the surrender agreement aboard the Missouri with MacArthur. And then shortly after that, I was on a ship that was sent to different parts of Japan and blow them up, all their military installations. And I spent three years and then I came back and went back to college. Probably the most vivid, I would say being in Tokyo Bay when they signed the surrender agreement aboard the Missouri. How'd you feel? I, I was glad it was over. <laughs> say, good, let's get out of here, go home. How old were you? Let's see, at that point, I was 19 or 20. When I started, we got out of high school and went, went into the service. Now, returning from World War II was a very different experience than coming home from war today. For today's young soldiers, many feel separated from civilian society because so few of their peers have served in uniform. It wasn't like that in Jean's day. Many young men were drafted, and among those who weren't, many volunteered. So everyone knew at least one service member. So Jean's homecoming was about as smooth as it can be coming back from a world war. Came out of the Navy, went back to college, because the Navy sent me to college for a year and a half. So I came back and finished the same college I went to. Well, I got out of the Navy in 46, and I graduated in 48. I got a job right after I graduated with the Hoover Vacuum Cleaner Company. I was a field auditor. I traveled all over the country auditing the Hoover offices. So that's what I did for a few years. It's always interesting to ask what an older generation thinks of a current one. 
So I wanted to hear his thoughts on how things have changed. The country seemed more together rather than now. It seems kind of splintered and screwed up to me. Doesn't seem cohesive like it was during those days. Everybody was one game, one objective, and now it's kind of screwed up. How does that make you feel? I'm, uh, I, I'm glad I don't have much more to go with it. I'll tell you that. It was better in those days, really. But of all the differences that have occurred over time, Gene is most struck with how young people socialize. I mean, meeting people now, it's all computerized. See, in my day, you met at dances. You went to dances. You met girls at dances. That, that was it. Do you have any good stories for meeting girls at dances? I met my wife. Did you? How yeah. did that happen? We were in college. And they had this called, we used to have things called mixers. You'd go to the dance. There were the girls, there were the boys. And you danced and you mixed. And that's how it happened. And let's see, two years later after we met, three years we got married. And has she since passed? or? Yes. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I've had bad luck with ladies. My wife died. Then I, then I came here. I joined the singles club. Met a lady there. We were kind of hooked up for about 12 years. Then she died. Do you think I'm hard on ladies? I I thought I was nice. Even though Gene has loved and lost, he certainly hasn't stopped. He goes on to describe his current love life. But um, life in the villages, I mean, well, was good. And now I'm in the home. The lady I was with, she passed away, but you know what? I met another lady. Did you really? I did. Yeah, how's that going? Going good. Yeah? Yeah. She's in the home with me. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, that... that you guys worked. hang out? We do. What do you guys do? We go to dinner together. That's about the hanging out. And we sit on the porch. Our driver's licenses have really respired. So they have a jitney, that jitney there, mm-hmm. the Mission Oaks, that's where I live. If we get enough time, they will, she will take us to the restaurant. Oh, <laughs> look at you, going yeah. on restaurant things. How old are you? I'm only 92. Sadly, our time together had to come to an end. I guess yeah. we're, we're ready to go back. Uh, yeah, you're, you're ready to load the bus. Oh, I'm okay. going to get loaded. One last question. Do you have any wisdom that you'd like to pass on? Follow your dream. The bus pulled up, and I quickly gave Gene a hug goodbye. And then he left. Because far be it from me to keep him from his restaurant date with his current lady friend. And Faith, how did you come to meet this gentleman? So all the veterans, they were all in a line so everyone could go through and shake hands. And he was near the end of the line. And every woman that went through, he had to make sure that he they got a kiss from him. And I was thinking, oh, I know I need to talk to that guy. Yep. And that was it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you picked well. Thanks for the work, Faith. It sounds like 
a pretty good gig. I want to come with you the next time. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories and the story of Gene Nupp. Fought bravely for this country during World War II, and it's so true. There aren't many men left. And here on Our American Stories, we make a point of talking about our soldiers a lot. Soldiers who fought in wars so far back that it was at the beginning of our country, the Revolutionary War, our hour on George Washington, our time spent on the Battle of Yorktown, the Civil War, straight up to the most current wars and the most recent Medal of Honor winners. This is Our American Stories. Fates report from the villages. More after these messages. American stories. And now we bring you the story of an American artist whose fuzzy afro and calming voice graced TV sets not only from coast to coast, but around the world from Muncie, Indiana. Here's Jesse Edwards with our look into the life of Bob Ross. If you mention the name Bob Ross around a baby boomer, they're likely to have fond memories growing up listening to his soothing voice while watching his educational painting show. Despite the fact that he died over 20 years ago, if you mention Bob Ross to a teenager, they're likely to be just as knowledgeable. Then there's everybody else in between who doesn't know Bob Ross because you're either not old enough to remember him the first time around or young enough to know about his recent viral comeback. Hello, I'm Bob Ross, and I'd like to welcome you to the 21st Joy of Painting series. If this is your first time with us, let me extend a personal invitation for you to drag out your little paintbrushes and some paints and, and paint along with us each show. And who hasn't sat around on a lazy weekend afternoon and watched the great Bob Ross do his thing on public television? Or just, just drag up the old easy chair and enjoy a relaxing half hour as we play some of nature's masterpieces on canvas. The mild-mannered, soft-spoken painter had a special ability to put his viewers into a trance-like state as we watched him paint his happy little trees and his... Beautiful landscapes. Now then, <clears throat> let's decide. Maybe there's a happy tree, evergreen tree. He lives right there. Start with just touching the canvas. Use just the corner of the brush, just the corner, and begin pushing, making the bristles bend slightly downward. See there? Look at that. Isn't that a nice little tree? And he lives right here in this brush. All you have to do is sort of push him out. Bob Ross created and starred in The Joy of Painting on PBS, where he taught viewers how to paint like he did using the wet-on-wet technique. His process involved painting his entire canvas in white before he laid down the other oil paints. While some stuffy, classically trained artists would say this is cheating, it didn't matter to Bob or anyone in his audience for that matter. We'll go right up to the top of the canvas, and we'll start. We'll just do some little X's, little crisscross strokes, and we'll work all the way across the top. Now the color is continually mixing with the liquid white and it creates all those beautiful variations that we want. Let me put a little more color on the brush here. And although Ross died of lymphoma at age 52 in 1995 on the 4th of July, he's just as famous now, if not more so, than he was at the peak of his career. There we go. Let's start at the top and work down. And that way, our sky will get progressively lighter toward the horizon. And that's exactly what we're looking for. 
in a landscape. You want things to get lighter toward the horizon and darker as they can come away from the horizon. His videos have millions of views on YouTube and has over 600,000 followers on Twitch where PBS regularly marathons episodes of The Joy of Painting. That effect happens automatically. You really don't have to worry about it. It, it just happens. And that truly is the joy of painting. There. His soothing voice continues to calm people and his endless supply of inspirational quotes like, there are no mistakes, only happy accidents are more relevant than ever. And see what happens. As you paint, you'll see all kind of things happening on your canvas, and very soon you learn to use all these beautiful little things that happen. We don't, we don't make mistakes. We have happy accidents. One of the first things people noticed about Bob Ross was his trademark afro. But it might surprise some fans to learn that his hair was naturally straight. He chose to get a perm because he thought he would save money by not having to get haircuts. Yet... Ross later regretted the lush curly locks and wanted to change his hair back to its natural state. But by that point, his company had already included Ross's iconic fro for the company logo, and there was no going back. Give him a shake. <laughs> and just beat the devil out of him. Sometimes those brushes get away and they go, soon, clean the other side of the room. That's when you find out who your friends are. Ross was born in Daytona Beach, Florida, and dropped out of his freshman year of high school to work on construction with his father. In 1961, then-18-year-old Ross enlisted in the Air Force and was put into service as a medical records technician. He eventually rose to the rank of Master Sergeant and served as the first sergeant of the U.S. Air Force Clinic at Ellison Air Force Base in Alaska. I spent half my life in the military, and there I had to, I had to live in somebody else's world all the time. Painting offered me freedom. I'd come home after all day of playing soldier, and I'd paint a picture, and I could paint the kind of world that I wanted. It was clean, it was sparkling, shiny, beautiful, no pollution, nobody, nobody upset. Everybody was happy in this world. That may be how I made it through 20 years of military. There we go. Because I could find freedom on this canvas. There is absolute freedom here. And I think we're all looking for freedom. His time in Alaska undoubtedly influenced his later work. It was in Alaska where he saw snow and mountains for the first time, both of which were heavily featured in his paintings. If you've never been to Alaska, you're to go see it. It's almost unreal. I was born and raised in Florida. And was, <laughs> I was almost 20 years old before I ever saw snow. And my favorite uncle, Uncle Sam, he sent me up there in January. Thought that would be funny. <laughs> it was funny. I, uh, I got off the plane. The first thing I did was stepped on the ice and fell on my bottom because I didn't know how to walk on ice. In Alaska, they have ice fog. And ice fog occurs normally when it's about 30 below or colder. And it covers everything. Everything with frost. It is so beautiful. Trees look like they're in full foliage. It's so beautiful. And the light plays through it. And these, all these little ice-covered, frosty things, they act like prisms. And they break up the light, and you see all colors in the trees. In the dead of winter, you can see just, oh, you have to go see it. I can't, can't explain it all to you. So pretty. It's hard to believe that anyone could watch this maestro at his easel and not be tempted to pick up a paintbrush. But the truth is, most of Ross's audience didn't even paint. 
So why do people watch? Some people just tune in for Rosh's welcoming persona and positive musings about life. Others tuned in because it helped lull them to sleep, a fact that Ross was well aware of. He didn't mind. That's the name of the game. It's enjoying. You really ought to enjoy what you do in life. If you do, then you'll do a good job. And I certainly enjoy what I'm doing. I spend half my life doing somebody else's thing. Painting should make you happy. If it does nothing else, it should make you happy. And if it doesn't make you happy, you're doing the wrong thing. Because it's fun. And if you can do things all of your life that make you happy, needless to say, you're going to be a happy person. And you know, when, when you buy your first tube of paint, you get an artist's license. And that license says you can do anything that makes you happy. He tirelessly churned out three copies of every painting that appeared on The Joy of Painting. He kept the first painting off screen and used it as a reference as he worked on the copy that appeared on the show. The final painting was completed after the episode was shot. A photographer would take pictures of these third final copies and the images would appear in Ross's how-to books. I want to get you to try being creative on canvas, just to take your time and, and sit down and have nothing in mind when you start. Just have a good feeling and be happy and and in love with life and your world and, and sit down and begin playing. And if you feel good about yourself and the world, it'll show in your painting and all these little things will happen. Bob Ross generously filmed 31 seasons of The Joy of Painting, but PBS didn't pay the artistic genius for a single episode. Instead, Ross used the show to market his brand. He made most of his money from his company, Bob Ross Inc., selling art supplies and instructional guides. The company also offered painting classes taught by artists trained in Ross's singular methods. If you happen to get some of it down in here, who cares? We'll end up turning that into reflections. We don't make mistakes. We have happy accidents. Just don't worry about it. Learn how to use what happens. In addition to being the sleep-inducing master that had the same effect on the brain as Valium, Ross was an avid animal lover. Peapod the squirrel could be found chilling in Ross's shirt pocket as he painted, and sometimes Ross would take a break from painting and bottle feed the squirrel for his audience. And this is how hard it is to get a little squirrel to eat. That's all there is to it. Aren't they the most precious little characters you've ever seen? This is surreal television. Yeah. You could feed them ten times a day, and they'll always be just about this hungry. Hey, you know, I have to go to work. Yeah, I have to go to work. Okay? All right. I'm going to set him right over here and let him finish lunch. And since he created those three paintings for each episode of The Joy of Painting, he ended up with thousands of works over the course of his life. Somewhere around 30,000 paintings. And he was practically drowning in fan letters. His popularity and ambient-like side effects on viewers caused them to send him up to 200 letters every day. And on several occasions, when a regular fan would stop writing in, Bob Ross would actually call that fan just to see if they were okay. So what happened to all those masterpieces that Bob Ross painstakingly created? He donated them all to public television stations across the country so they could auction them off and keep the money. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Hey, now we can wash the old brush. And if you've painted with me before, you know this is the fun part of this whole technique. We wash our brushes with odorless thinner, shake them off, 
and just beat the devil out of them. And that's where you take all your hostilities and frustrations. And it's a lot of fun. <laughs> there we go. Just have to splash the cameraman one time so he, he doesn't feel neglected. This is Our American Stories. By the way, nothing makes me happier than seeing my wife and my little girl, 13 years old, in front of the smart TV, painting together to whom? To old Bob Ross videos. Bob Ross's story here on Our American Stories. Great job, as always, by Jesse. This is Our American Stories, and it's time for one of our favorite segments. We love music here on the show, and it's the story of a song, and we've done a bunch of great ones. Jesus Takes the Wheel, There Goes My Life, Another Brick in the Wall, Give Me Shelter, on and on. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and listen to all of them when you're taking a long ride. You'll love it. A lot of it from the songwriters themselves. Light My Fire, The Exegesis by Ray Manzarek, the keyboard player. It's just amazing. There are songs that sound like they've been around forever. Songs that were not written as much as transcribed. Transcribed for the ages. The song we're about to talk about, well, it's one of those songs. It's by country legend Vince Gill. And it's Go Rest High on That Mountain. For the longest time, I just thought it was part of the American songbook. One of those songs that was always just there, like House of the Rising Sun. One of the songs that when you go to find who wrote it, well, it had no author. I want to play a clip because when we're telling the story of the song, we like to hear from the writer himself and the source of the inspiration of this song that felt like it's been around forever. Here's Vince Gill talking about it. I've had bigger hits and songs that have sold more and, and all of those, uh, all those things, but that will be the one song, hands down, that, that will that will identify me, and I couldn't be prouder. You know, if that were to wind up in a hymnal someday, it would yeah. just be the sweetest thing yeah. in the world, you know, that something I did later in life was would correlate with the very first thing that I ever heard was something out of a hymnal. And I, I know that song is, is powerful. Um, I, I did, it, it had no intention of being any of that. You know, all it was intended for was for me to grieve my brother's death and honor him and, and, and celebrate what I thought was in store for him and and what really didn't even plan to record it. And Tony Brown said, you have to record this song. I said, well, okay, if you want to. And and, and then they told me they were going to put it as a single. And I said, well, you guys have lost your minds. <laughs> and I couldn't have been more wrong. But um, I, I, I really could not be prouder that that I was lucky enough to, to, to strike a chord with people that, that they want to go to that song um, in their gravest times and in their most painful and hurtful and, and sad times that they go to that song to find comfort. Maya Angelou um, got in touch with me and told me that that song um, was an amazing um, healing process for her when she lost her brother. Sure. I feel pretty blessed and lucky and all those things to 
have gotten to write that one. And we're all blessed and lucky he did. And you know, it was interesting as we were listening to that clip, Greg Hengler pointed out to us that he doesn't just wait for folks to die to celebrate this song and to listen to this song. In fact, he listens to it every week, he told us. And then in the end, it inspires him as it relates to how to live. There was one particular lyric I'm going to quote to you, and then we're going to play the song in its entirety, as we always do with the story of the song. And it's the chorus. Go rest high on that mountain. Son, when your work on earth is done, go to heaven a-shoutin'. Love for the Father and the Son. And with that, for both folks who listen to it uh, when people have died, and for folks like Greg who listen to it to inspire them, let's take a listen to Vince Gill's song. I know your life on earth was troubled. And you're listening, by the way, to Ricky Skaggs and Patty Loveless. Gil's older brother Bob died of a heart attack in 1993. This song won Vince Gill, CMA Song of the Year Award in 1996, and two Grammys. This is Our American Stories, the story of a song.
This is Our American Stories, and that music cues us for one of our favorite regular features, and that's The Burning Question with Heidi Mitchell, and she writes that column weekly for the Wall Street Journal, and for all of you who think you're going to go to the journal and just get highfalutin finance, our favorite part of the journal is the personal journal, and one of our favorite people who writes regularly for the personal journal is Heidi Mitchell, and her latest question How often should I replace my coffee mug in the office? And Heidi, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Well, you know, Heidi. I need a cup of coffee right now. I I need two. And I I drink soda. So (laughs) I don't drink coffee. I get my caffeine from Coca Cola. But you could say the same about my Coke mug. So we'll we'll have to. I know it's gross. But let's talk about (laughs) how did. Why this one, Heidi? Is there someone in your office who has what we call the really gross coffee mug? It's more that the that devotion to the coffee mug that people who have worked in the same office at the journal or wherever for forever they haven't never replaced them. So you'll go to the you know the kitchen and wash your mug out or whatever, make microwave your lunch, and in the cabinet are these sort of verboten mugs that have been there for fifteen twenty years. <laughs> you're not allowed to use them. Yeah, you're so not the allowed. Question to... was like, whose are these and why are they so attached? These and is it unsafe to have the same disgusting brown mug? sitting in there for years yeah and by the way it's not only that you can't use them some people won't even let you look at them or touch them it's so personal (laughs) no don't look at my mug do not look at my mug (laughs) i mean you get attached to these things they're hard to find the perfect mug i i I understand that so so tell me this first heidi do you use the same coffee mug from your early writing days i'm the worst because i i get my coffee from the guy at the cart and I don't spend more than a dollar on my coffee. I probably spend less than any average American on coffee, on any coffee-drinking American, because I just get it from the cup, from the cup, from the guy in the street. I don't have a mug. Oh, my goodness. I don't have a mug. Oh, my goodness. Well, this, this, gives, get a mug. this allows you to be dispassionate about this. And, and what's <laughs> the worry here, Heidi? You, you, you have a mug, or your mug's near one of these other mugs? Because that's what I always worry about. It's like too much contact to that, that diseased or old mug. Do I have anything to worry about? Does anybody have anybody to worry? Anybody have anything to worry about, Heidi? You know, there are few um, germs that can last more than an hour on an inert object like a like a mug. So you really don't have anything to worry about. I mean, they're, they're, it's not like the germs are going to jump from one mug to the next. I guess that they're touching, maybe, but you need a critical mass to get you sick. So you really don't, there's never been a case as far as the NIH or or any major uh, institutions have known about that people were, there was a a mass breakout of infection due to coffee mugs. So your mug sitting next to another mug. It's cool. Your mug's fine. So so what about that? You know, we have a friend in the studio who, when we described the... uh, the office coffee mug talked about his dad's and how his dad would just never ever replace it, and you know it would start to get him nervous. Talk about that. Also, talk about Navy sailors who take really great pride in what I call or what you call seasoning the mug. Seasoning the mug. I like that. I love this. Um, so, so I was talking to uh, you know this Dr. Stark, who um, you know he was the director of infection control at a hospital in Texas for 22 years. And, and you're talking about, about Dr. Jeffrey Stark, a professor of pediatrics at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. And what I love here, Heidi, is that in the end, you always call some expert who has an expertise in almost everything in every walk of American life. I just love that yeah. part of your column. Who knew? Who 
Who knew these people existed? Yep. Right. Well, he, he couldn't find any studies that were specifically on coffee mugs and germs that lurk inside of them. But he did have this great anecdote about um, how, like you said, that in the Navy, they take this great pride. There's a thing called, um, uh, what do they call it? They call it uh, seasoning their mugs. So, um, so he said there, there was some, if you Google it, you can see on these like Navy blogs that um, – the first thing your sergeant will tell you is don't wash your mug. And that supposedly the Navy coffee is just toxic. And so the, the longer you let it, it your, your coffee mug turn brown over months and years, the better that your coffee will taste. There's not data to back this up, but there's a lot of anecdotal evidence. So seasoning your mug, letting it turn, you know how it turns brown on the inside yep. from the black coffee. So, uh, so yeah, so, it, there's no data that says that this unwashed mug or this blackness that sits inside of the of the mug, un, empty, unwashed mug, is bad for you. Doesn't harbor germs. Doesn't harbor infectious disease. Hasn't resulted in any outbreaks. So, um, so you you know you don't really need to even wash out your mug. You can just rinse out your mug. Kind of gross. It is kind of like, gross. It is kind of. But here's where it gets grosser. Doctor Stark. This is, I'm going to quote from your article, Heidi. And I know writers generally don't like having their own work quoted back at them. But here's Dr. Stark's quote, which you include in the piece. Now, if you leave cream or sugar in your mug over the weekend, now that can certainly cause mold to grow. And if your mug had obvious signs of mold, you might not want to drink from it. Talk about that, Heidi. I think that's fairly obvious. But haven't you done that where you like... I mean, my dad's a big, oh, he does this all the time where he buys a coffee in the morning and then he leaves in the car all day and then the next morning he's like, meh. And I'll just drink his coffee from the car. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, you can see there's like kind of oil spills on top and all this stuff. The lint in the air that's fallen onto it. It's just disgusting. I don't know why. <laughs> I guess the first thing you do when you get to your office is just like pour out whatever's in there, rinse it out. And then you can start your Keurig or whatever they have at your office um, and fill your mug. But, um, you know, if it has obvious signs of like, you know, that, that it will cause almost like a crust of that white creamer is just the worst, but milk will curdle too. It's just gross. You can totally tell. Yeah. But you know, if you rinse it out, it doesn't like the, the, I asked about the ceramic and the glaze and that stuff won't, it won't hold in that bacteria or viruses or anything like that. They, they can't live for more than like a year, so a, an hour. So like even overnight, if you had rinsed out your mug and left it sitting there and there's like little bits of coffee in there, it's, it's not going to leave um, any like whatever legionnaires or whatever in there. Well, that's good to know, Heidi. By the way, I have a rule in my family, and that is that dad is not allowed to take takeout food ever again from anywhere because I will take it, stick it underneath the seat, and then I'll leave it <gasps> underneath the seat for anywhere from two days to two months until one day we all discover that dad's oh. done it again, and there's all kinds of things growing oh in the car. Gosh. Yeah, it's terrible. I do want to know that how long can food last? Because we have a debate in my house about leftovers. Nobody eats the leftovers. And then four days later, I'm like, I feel like it has to go in the garbage. My mother, I'm living with her in the summer, she's like, oh, no, it's good for a week. I really don't think cooked food <laughs> in the fridge it's good for me. No, I don't Coffee think so Coffee from either. yesterday is also not good. <laughs> no, it's not. So knowing all we know, uh, how should we wash our mugs and how often should we wash them? Okay, so this is an interesting one. You should wash your mug with like a little dab of soap and some warm water. He says like a lot of people said well, there were some, a lot of things online, but you could take the super hot water that comes out of the spigot sometimes or on one of those on like 
mulligan ones and um, colligan ones and, and fill your uh, mug with some hot water and then just swish it around and pour it out. But what you don't want to do is use the sponge because of all the nasty things in your office, besides, you know, that coworker that you don't like, that sponge is the grossest thing in the office. Um, it ha- has everyone's germs on it from all the food that they clean, that clean, you know, the place they clean the food off with and their dirty hands and whether or not they used the bathroom and didn't wash their hands and then pick up the sponge. And so the sponge is really disgusting. So don't use that on your, um, on your mug when you're cleaning it. But, you know, if you accidentally use that verboten mug that's sitting in the, in the cabinet and maybe that person's out sick and you've always wanted to try the I Love Mom mug that's sitting in there, um, what's great is that you don't have to worry about getting sick from it because, as Dr. Stark said, um, normal ger- people's normal germs really won't make you sick. He said if they did, then we would have to ban kissing. Oh, that's a that's a fair point, though. There are some people I don't know if I want to kiss them because their mouths are receptacles of diseases, too. That's true, too. Oh, well, Heidi, what are you doing? Anything special for your Christmas season? I'm going to my motherland, my homeland of New York City. Well, so good. I'll be there for a few weeks, a few days, just, you know, pretending like I still live there. Good for you. If you have a chance, if you have a chance and you're in Brooklyn, ask a uh-huh. cab driver to take you to Spumoni Gardens. And if you haven't ever been there in your life, You'll thank me after you have their pizza. It's truly Spumoni the most... Gardens. Gardens. Dan- pizza Brooklyn. I'm Googling it as you speak. Avenue U. It's a legend. It's been, on every, it's been featured on almost every cooking network, but my friends in Brooklyn don't know about it. Every time I go back to even Manhattan, I demand to go out to Spumoni Gardens. I'm promising you, you won't regret it. Heidi, as right. always, we love having you on. Uh, have a happy holidays, and we'll look forward to talking to you on the other side. Thank you. Take care. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, The Burning Question with Heidi Mitchell. And she, of course, writes that for the personal journal, a part of the Wall Street Journal. Go to WSJ.com to get America's paper. It's simply the best paper in the world. And again, this is Our American Stories. time of year it's commencement time and this is our american stories this is lee habib and the team well they just cobbled together some of the great great commencement speeches some by famous people we had a couple from students that were extraordinary and we had one from a faculty member of duke university that was the most dreadful commencement speech of all time so bad it was good it was so bad it was hilarious <laughs> inadvertently so if you get a chance go to ouramericannetwork.org and just find that duke professor's commencement address today this is a doozy this is a good one uh it was 2006 this commencement speech at the citadel 
and it was no other than General Pete Pace. And he was a Vietnam vet, fought in every war since Vietnam. He was a Naval Academy grad, the first Marine to hold the titles of Vice Chairman and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And let's take a listen to how General Pace begins that 2006 commencement address. Today's a great day. We were in the tank yesterday with the Joint Chiefs, and I told them I was coming down here to do this this morning. And I said, what do you think I should say? And one of the unnamed chiefs said, just tell them you love them, shut up and sit down. I thought that was pretty good advice. (laughs) But I'd be remiss if I didn't say a few more words than that. To the parents and family members who are here, especially the parents, congratulations to you. I know that today is an extremely proud day for all of you. And probably there's a tinge of financial relief as well. But I know as moms and dads and guardians and brothers and sisters that when you look down on these young folks in uniform, that you must have enormous pride in what you have done to make today possible for them. Families are fundamental. So fundamental in my belief that when I walk into my morning meeting, every morning to the 15 or 20 individuals who are there to help me get the day started, I always say, cheery good morning, family. Because to me, family is what it's all about. And I hope each of you here today, and if you do the math, there's about 400 graduates and about 5,000 family members and friends here, that speaks volumes about the communities from which these graduates come and from the families from which they have learned their basic values in life. I hope and I know that everyone here in uniform will join me in thanking their families for your support. Now, for the class of 2006, congratulations. You have worked hard, and you have absolutely earned the right to start at the bottom. There's nothing wrong with that. I'll guarantee you every single admiral and general on active duty today, and a lot of the retired guys too, would switch places with any lieutenant or ensign today. Why? Because what you are about to do, those of you who who are taking your commissions, is simply going to be one heck of a ride and those of us who have walked that path before you would do it again in a heartbeat. 
Now, you won't hear many lawyers telling a graduating law class that, folks. And beautiful words to hear. You've absolutely earned the right to start at the bottom. And this audience got the joke. They laughed hard. They understood it. Honor culture here at Citadel. Not many places left in the country like it. Let us rejoin General Pace. But this institution graduates more than those who select to join the military. This institution graduates leaders, leaders for many walks of life. And therefore, there are a couple of things I would like to say to you, no matter what you have decided as your path forward. First, grow where you are planted. Some of you are going to go to jobs that were not your first choice. Some of you in the military will go into specialties that were not your first choice. I guarantee you that wherever you go, there are individuals who deserve caring leadership. And if you will go to that job or that profession and give it your very best, I promise you that you will find it fulfilling and that you will continue to get promoted because there are more good jobs than there are good people. And those of you who tackle whatever is given to you with all your strength and all your heart will shine and will get the next good job. What advice? Grow where you are, uh, go, grow where you are planted. Not go where your dream is and all the usual mumbo jumbo. I think that many, many commencement speakers, well, they push on the, on the kids. This guy's saying, look, you're going to end up probably someplace you're not crazy about, and you're going to end up at the bottom. Good. This is fantastic news. Happens to all of us. And then grow where you are planted. Reminds me of cast down your bucket here, the remarkable speech that Booker T. Washington gave in the Atlanta Exposition, where he was telling fellow African Americans, you know, quit moving around, cast down your bucket here, get to work, build things, own things. And grow where you are planted. And we're going to come back on the other side of this with more from General Pete Pace. And what I'd love to have you do also is go to our American network, Michael Bloomberg's speech at Harvard uh, two years ago and at the University of Michigan last year were simply terrific. And a friend of mine just heard the Robert De Niro commencement speech at the Tisch School of Arts. By the way, he gave a very similar tonal speech to the young people talking about life in the arts and how difficult it would be that they were basically screwed because they weren't going to work regularly ever in their life. But he also said that's the nature of the beast and that is a good thing. That's a good thing for you as an artist. And then at the end, he told everybody to be handing out his business cards because he was looking for a job and somewhere in that audience was the next star director. What humility that took from Robert De Niro to say, hey, look, sometimes I still get rejected. And I'm Robert De Niro. And by the way, kid, here's my card. You got any jobs? Got a movie? Got a movie deal? 
Fantastic. And P- Peter Pace doing the same. He's not talking down to these students. He's not talking up to them. He's talking to them right where they live. And when we come back, you're going to hear an amazing story from General Pace about leadership, about him being planted from college and the academy to the killing fields of Vietnam. And what does a young man do leading men who'd been there many years before? Hang on to your seats. General Peter Pace on the other side of this break. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, General Pete Pace's commencement speech at the Citadel in 2006. And he's just graduated from the Naval Academy, and he's about to become the third platoon leader in three weeks as he begins his first tour of duty in Vietnam. Let's pick it up with General Pace. Second. Check your moral compass frequently. I have seen it both in combat and in peace. If you do not know who you are walking into a situation, you may not like who you are when you're done. When I was a lieutenant in Vietnam, I lost Lance Corporal Guido Farinero from Bethpage, New York, a 19-year-old Marine, to a sniper. The first Marine I'd ever lost in combat. I was filled with rage, and I called in an artillery strike on the village from which the sniper fired. Between the time that I called in the strike and the rounds were fired, my platoon sergeant didn't say a word. He just looked at me. And I realized I was doing the wrong thing. And I called off the artillery strike, and we did what we should have done, which was to sweep through the village. And all we found in that village were women and children. I do not know how I could live with myself today if I had carried that first instinct forward. The time to decide who you are and what you will let yourself do is not when somebody gets shot, is not when your wingman gets shot down. It is before you get in that situation so you have an anchor to hold on to. This applies elsewhere. I have had the great privilege of watching and knowing real heroes in combat. I've also had the great privilege of watching and knowing great heroes around conference tables. 
with the discussion amongst many very senior leaders, each very powerful in their own, own right, each very articulate in their own right, was going in one direction. And somebody in that room says, I see it a little bit differently, and speaks their mind. That takes an enormous amount of courage. If you're wrong in combat, you may die. If you are wrong in a situation like I just described, where your reputation is on the line, you have to live with it. So when you walk into a room like that, it is well to have thought through who you are and what your fundamental beliefs are. Where is your moral compass? So that when the situation and the discussion starts going one way, you have already decided where you are. And the person who walks out of that room is the person you wanted to be the person walking into that room. So that was point number two, check your moral compass, and what a story. Let's go on now with point number three. Third, make decisions. In Vietnam, after we spent a couple of months in Hue City during Teta 68, my company went on a patrol, and my platoon had the lead point on the patrol. I remember getting to the first decision point and calling back on the radio to my company commander and saying, Should, you want to go left or go right? And he said, go left. I called the second time a little while later and said, you want me to go left or go right? He said, go right. I called the third time and asked him, what do you want me to do? And I got the butt chewing of my life over the radio. <laughs> and basically, when you take out the curse words, what my company commander said to me was, Lieutenant, you are in charge. You make the decisions. I handed the radio back to my radio operator, Corporal Irvin, and I said, if the company commander calls, tell him I'm not, not here. Because <laughs> I'm going to go start making some decisions. And I promised myself that day, 38 years ago now, that if I was going to get in trouble again, it was going to be for going too far. And I have gotten in trouble again. And it has been for going too far. And I've had a hard time explaining to my bosses who were chewing me out why I was smiling. <laughs> and I was smiling because I did what I promised myself I would do. I was making decisions. Fundamentally, it is true whether you're in civilian life or the military. It is easier to get forgiveness than it is to get permission. Just go do it. That's why you're getting paid. That's why you're there. Make decisions. Brilliant advice. And here is General Pete Pace at the Citadel in 2006 with his final point four. Fourth and last. And this is the most basic. Take care of those in your charge. Whether you're fortunate to have one or a hundred or a thousand or whatever number of individuals it is who are looking to you for leadership, do all in your power to understand what their needs are and as best you can to provide it for them. You will not be able to do everything. You will not 
know everything. But if your subordinates know that you want to know what their problems are, that you do want to try to help, even if you can't get it right, your organization will bind together as a team better than you could ever demand. And they will freely give to you more than you could ever demand simply by doing the right thing, which is to take, take care of those in your charge. I would like to say just a few words to those of you who are accepting your commissions today. Thank you. Your country needs you. We are at war. I promise you, when you put your hand in the air and take that oath, that you will never regret having done so. Whether you spend four years or 40 years in uniform, you will serve this country in a great time of need. And your children and your grandchildren, when you look upon them, you will know what you have done, and they will know what you have done. This is a wonderful country. This institution has provided some of our best leaders, military and civilian. I congratulate you today. For those of us on the stage who are getting closer to the end of our active lives than you are. It is great to look out on this sea of faces and to know that you are ready to take on the challenges that lie ahead. Class of 2006, God bless you. Congratulations. Wow, what a, what a four-stage speech. Grower, you are planted. Check your moral compass, make decisions, and take care of those in your charge. Follow those four. You'll have a good life. After his retirement ceremony, General Pace left to visit the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. This is just a a little bit of backstory on this guy. And there alone, he left several handwritten notes with a set of his general's rank insignia attached to each one. He was a four-star. By the way, that's a pretty big deal. Each note was similar to this one. These are yours, not mine. Exclamation point, by the way. With love and respect, your platoon leader, Pete Pace. That's what this guy does after he's done with a commission as one of the most powerful men, not only in the United States, but in the world. That's where he goes. That's the nature of the guy. These are the stories we love to bring you here on Our American Stories. 
And you can go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and capture all of our commencement speeches and capture all that we do. And great work on this, John, and the whole team here at Our American Stories. Hopefully I can take care of those who, who serve all of you so well each day. we got a great team here. More after these messages. <laughs> 